All right, so here we are. The long-anticipated Life in the Peloton podcast is back up and running, and I'm sitting here with two today. It's the first time I've done a podcast with three guys, and I'm sitting here with my brother, Kirk Docker, who is a TV producer back in Australia, and um, has produced shows like You Can't Ask That, Demolition Man. So I'm very privileged to have him here. Actually, one of my mentors when it comes to the podcast, so he'll be... Uh, calling the shots today maybe and I've got my good friend here Michael Hepburn who is also living in Girona with me and we're actually sitting here on the top of my building beautiful location stunning actually in the rain yeah. of course the rain rolled in just as we're starting to record so I'll send a photo put a photo up and we'll be able to see where we're recording um welcome Peppy thanks for having me mate it's good to finally get on the on the potty I know I've been wanting to get you on for ages but I want to get the right topic. Long time listener, so I'm happy to be here. And of course my brother, Kirk, welcome to Spain and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. And I, I never expected to ever be on this podcast. I, of course, listen to this podcast to learn all about what it's like to live and ride in the Peloton, but never thought I'd be a guest. So I feel very privileged to be here, uh, part of the show. I'm very happy to have you guys here. And well, having a nice little cold ale to sort of uh, take the edge off and just to get in the spirit of the podcast. Um, and today, the idea of the podcast today was, we were thinking about what we could, Kirk and I were talking about, you know, we'd love to speak to Happy, And we we're like, well, I thought it would be a really good idea if Kirk just actually shot both of us some questions about what he sees as interesting or things he doesn't know about life in the Peloton um, from the outside, because... Well, it's like when you're yeah. home and you say, people say, oh, what, where are you going? I'm going across to Spain for a holiday. Oh, yeah, well, how come? Visiting my brother, what does he do? And he rides, you know, he's a cyclist. Oh, yeah, does he ride Tour de France? That's their first question. Yeah. So I suppose when people know that someone that you're close to uh, cycles for a living, people are interested, but they have all these commonly asked questions. They ask me the questions, and I do the best I can to sort of answer it. So I suppose the idea today is to ask you both these commonly asked questions from back home that maybe you would never even think to ask each other because they're so simple. Um, and also chocks you up with information. Then when you get these questions, you're like, you know what? I actually know the answer to that. That's right. Or you can just reference them straight to the podcast and go, hey, just listen to this podcast. Yes. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, this, this, is, this is an episode for the rookies. <laughs> Good. So helps. These are sort of a hard sport to understand and Certainly, I think people back home have a, have a lot of trouble just understanding um, everything that comes with the sport. So. Well, maybe even what we're doing, if you see a photo of us now, it sort of confuses the whole situation too because we're sitting up on a beautiful balcony drinking beers and they're like, I <laughs> thought you guys were professional athletes. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, we are. <laughs> so I suppose yeah. it's a commonly asked questions episode from a yeah. perspective of a layman, me. Um, so I've just jotted down some commonly asked questions I feel like I get back home and some things I just think are interesting that I know a little bit about that I want to know from you guys. So I suppose first up, why Girona? Why do you live in Girona? Of all places in Europe, why is it here? Explain. I think it's a mix of a few things. Obviously, um, we have to be based in Europe, coming from Australia. Um, so you can live anywhere? You can live, you can live wherever you want um, in most teams, I think. You know, some of the development teams, uh, the under 23 level, obviously you have a base somewhere and you're supposed to be um, with them. But for us, yeah, we can live wherever, like Mitch, you did a few years before Girona. Um, 
since I turned professional, I've always been here. Great location, the weather's great. Um, training around here is, is quite nice. You're close to the Pyrenees. You've got the beaches not too far away. Um, but also a lot of cyclists are moving here. So it's, it, it really has that, um, you know, that cycling feel to it. And, you know, you've always got a friend just up the road if you need to catch up or have a chat or something like that. So I think that's, that's the way it started. Um, well, I reckon, sorry to interrupt there, Heps, but on a different sort of note, because um, when I first came across, I lived in Belgium because my team was based there and they wanted me to live close to the team base. And then when I joined Green Edge, they said, you can live wherever you want. So my first choice, when I first came to Europe, there was no real choice. They wanted me in Holland, wanted me close to the team. Then Green Edge said, you can live where you want. So I was like, right, now where am I going to live? And that's all those points that you said. But the biggest thing for me was there were people here in Girona who had done everything before. So simple things like Getting your car registered. Finding an apartment. Finding an apartment. Getting an NIE number or something like that. Like, it's little crap like that, that you can always go, you know what? Hey, Happy. Oh, hey, Mitch, did, how'd you do that? You're like, oh, I called so-and-so. He knows how to do it. And then it's just all those little links that you underestimate when you're back home in Oz. So how is, has Girona been a cycling town for a while? Well, like if people it, lived here before and you say people have done it before I heard someone mention to me that maybe Armstrong lived here for a yeah, while he was yeah. the icebreaker I, I think. think I think they yeah. were here in the early 2000s or 2001 or 2002 there's there's a few Americans here but I think it was, I think it was probably King Cappy and around 08 or 09 I think when it started to to get a lot, yeah. lot busier and even when we came in 12 in 2012 yeah. it certainly wasn't like it is today shit no and just to explain, it's only a 38-minute train ride from Barcelona, so you're close to a big city. 37 on a good day, yeah. 37 <laughs> on a good day, right. <laughs> I had a slow day yesterday. <laughs> Into the headwind, though. Yeah, that's right. And I've heard you say this to me before too, Mitch, there's respect here for cyclists on the road, and the roads are good, and simple things like that, which sound very obvious to you guys, but back home you, you don't necessarily think about those sorts of things. I'd, I'm happy you probably almost agree. I struggle to find... Like, when I train in all other places, there's always one thing that's annoying, but you deal with it because there's only mm. one thing. Like, in Australia, there's probably 10 things, but one thing, you know, the, the cars there, the traffic, yeah. it, it's a pretty annoying thing. And also, when you stop for coffee, it costs you 50 bucks. So, they're two annoying things. But here, you stop for coffee, it costs you, like, 10 euro. So, that's good. The roads are awesome. Like you can do hills. You can do flat. Yeah, you're well, getting a like, deal as well. You get a sandwich. Yeah, right. You get what I'm not talking about. I've had coffee here. It doesn't cost ten euros. I'm talking about everyone as well. Where's he going? Yeah, like I'm talking. You got like five guys. Oh, you got you got the round. Yeah, you don't even take a pineapple out with you. Yeah, exactly. Like you do back home. And then, then the traffic. You know, like it even gets to the point where the traffic and you're going on a road and you're like, why is this guy not going around me? You know, because he's just so polite. So, the training here is, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Good options. Good options. Close to the beach, close to the mountains and the Pyrenees. Good weather. Good weather, that's right. Although it's been stinking hot for the last couple Plus, you both got partners, and when you're away racing, yep. I imagine this is a good spot for them to stay. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's network for them too. Certainly, yeah. yeah. You know, they've got a lot of, that's, lot of friends here and a lot of things to do as well. So. Yeah. And that's, and that's probably been a more, more important thing for me in the last few years is that I think to a degree, we can probably live anywhere and train pretty well as long as there's a few other riders around, but yeah, like you got to think of the whole picture, yeah. you know, like if you're leaving for a grandy, a grand tour and you got, you know, four weeks away, then you're just leaving your, your wife or your girlfriend here on her own in some 
weird town that's good for training. She's not going to be super yeah, happy. if they're not training. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Girona's a, it's a nice place to live. And, you know, we also spend quite a lot of time up in Andorra too, which is not too far away. There's just the big mountains there too, so. Because it does get busy here. Yeah. It gets busy here and it's good sometimes just to get away from town for a few days. All right, well, moving on, next question. I, Mitch dragged me out on a ride the other day and I don't, I rarely get on a bike and go for a ride. Definitely never put kit on. Anyway, we're riding out, we drive past a big factory that had mirrored windows and he's like, fashion check. Made me look in there. I was like, what? Fashion check? What did I actually say? Style check. Style check, yeah. style check, right. So what I want to talk to you guys about is, is fashion in the peloton, style. What's good style, what's bad style? For people back home listening and, you know, they're getting their kit on the weekends, how do you wear kit? when you're, when you wear in the peloton? Do people wear different styles? Do mm. Italians wear it different from Aussies? What do you guys consider yeah. good style or not? Because cycling weirdly, there's a lot yeah. of style involved. There is a lot of style and the kids are changing a lot as well. Um, firstly, did you, do you do the style check in the mirrors when you get the chance? Yeah, if, yeah. I, if I can see. Yeah. What are you looking for? You're looking at the legs or you're looking up body or? Legs, I don't like looking up a body. Yeah. Sometimes you've got a bit of a gut hanging, but <laughs> your legs always look pretty trim. You know? Actually got a funny story. When I was uh, under 19, um, I was with, we were going to the Junior Worlds and we were in Italy training with the, with the national team with Dave Sanders as a coach and Michael Matthews was there. Yeah. And he, was, um, he decided to do the mirror check going past his bike shop, beautiful windows, did the check. <laughs> And just went straight up the back <laughs> of a car, <laughs> of a car parked at these traffic lights. And I think he was riding this Cervelo bike, broke it. This is like two weeks before the world, so the the national program had to give him a bike that he raced the worlds on. He ended up getting second. Check that yeah. one. So what are you checking? If yeah. that was a good question you asked Mitch, what are you checking? What are, what are riders checking when they do a style check? I think you just want to look good. Yeah, you you want to look you ripped. Want to, you want to look at your position too. You're yeah. like, what do I actually... Because you, you're watching everyone in the peloton. And that's something when yeah. I'm watching races. You know who everyone is because you can see their style. Yeah. And everyone's got their own distinct style and little intricacies. Heppy's actually brilliant at impersonating people's styles. And if the race <laughs> is like semi-easy and you're pretty bored, you're like, hey, Heppy, do some impersonations. And then like... You actually have to tell him to stop because you, you're losing your mind in the peloton. You can't breathe because you. It was that day in the Giro a yeah. few years ago. Yeah. Who's someone? Who's someone you do their style and what are the oh. what are the characteristics of their style? Like Durbo, for example. No, you do Durbo. You did you did Gerens, Simon Gerens. He's, he's got that high cadence, high cadence. you know. Yeah. You did like um, who else have you done? Cookie. Yeah, Baden Cook. He he's quite a twitchy sort of rider. He's always fixing himself up on the saddle. Pull the next back. Yeah. People got like all the weird little things that they do. Like I've I've got to like kick my right leg out all the time, you know. And I didn't know I was doing it until someone told me. Like, well, what's common trends in nick length and those sorts of things? Socks, you know. How to? How I think it's changing. It went, it went really long there for a while, didn't it? Yeah. But I'm not sure if it's if it's um, three or four years ago. It was certainly almost down to the knee, wasn't it? Yeah, nick length was 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 important. But then, if someone always takes it too far. Yeah. You know, like sock height. It was like, oh, we've got to have nice high socks. And then someone wears the socks like halfway up to their knee. You're like, mate, too far. Yeah. I, I like Valverde's style with the socks. No sock. No, like a, he still does the socks, but just not not up to the calf or anything. I think some people certainly overdo it with the with the sock length. The French, the French have their own style. They like the short nicks, high socks. And they also like having like a barbed wire tattoo around their, yeah. around their quad. Those tattoos are nice, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I'm trying to think what other sort of styles are out. I think the Aussies always do sort of the, the long nicks. Yeah. M- you know, medium sock height. The Frenchies certainly go for that look. Italians? They don't mind the short nicks. Um, they're more about the tan. They do the, the, the sleeves rolled up if the stage is yeah. easy. They're trying to get rid of the tan lines all the time. Um, Perfectly rolled up sleeves. Maybe even like the helmet strap behind the, the neck to get rid of the <laughs> helmet strap lines. Yeah. On the way back to the bus yeah. after the race. Take the gloves off when the race is done. They've got to yeah. roll up the final mountain. Take your gloves off so you don't get any yeah. tan lines on your hands. Glasses off, helmet back yeah. on the head. Helmet back. They yeah. do do that. <laughs> so they don't get the tan line on their yeah. forehead. There was that German guy I used to do. Yeah, that. that's right. In room. Yeah, Gresh. That's right. Yeah. All right. While we're on fashion, mini hats. Tell me about mini hats. What are they called? What are they for? What's their purpose? I feel like it's changed over time. You used to be able to race in a mini hat, uh, but now that you know, do they have other purposes? T- tell me about them. Do you wear them? Do you not? Is in a cavallino. Yeah, casquette. Is that what they're called? I think well, the French word's casquette. I think it was the Italian word cavallino. Oh yeah, I think so. That's all. That's what we say, isn't it? Yeah. I think like originally they were racing in them, and then it went from when they started racing with those sausage helmets. They used to put the cap over the sausage helmet. I don't know why they did that. The, oh, the leather. Yeah. yeah, I've seen it over the top a few yeah. times. Oh my god! And then, then now they wouldn't have been getting much luft with that cap. Nah, it no, no, stretched at all. out. Yeah, it would have been like skull. It's like cap. putting a, a cavalino on top of your helmet. Um, now we've got to wear helmets, and we people wear them under the hat, under the helmet. Well, the Frenchies wear them under the helmet, like rain, hail, or shine. But we mainly wear them under the helmet to protect from the rain. Or on a cold day. Or on a cold day. But often you'll chop. Often we'll chop out the center of the cap, so it looks more like a like a headband with the, like with a visor. the visor. Yeah. And then that allows your head to breathe a little bit better. Mm. If it's really cold, you probably won't do it. But there. The brim also protects you from the rain. So when you're sitting on the wheel behind, you the most of the the rain's actually not bad. The worst thing about the rain is, is the spray. a spray from the wheel in front. So when you're in the peloton, obviously you want to sit in the peloton to get a sit. You get the spray from all the wheels. And that little brim protects you your eyes from the rain. Um, but We quite enjoy wearing them to the sign-on, though, yeah, that's beforehand. A, you, you, on the bus, chuck your cappellino on, <sighs> have a look in the mirror, make sure you're getting plenty of luft. You want it just sitting on top of the, on the top of the head, still quite high with a little bit of air in there. Tell me about the height, because... Being a novice back home and have been watching races for a long time, I feel like Indurain had the ultimate height. Indurain he had some had serious height. He was racing time trials with that thing, like yeah. barely sitting on his head and it just wasn't moving anywhere. What, what's it about the height? Why does it need height? Yeah, Indurain had great, great height with his, with his hat. But I feel like the hats were different back then because it seems like everybody wore them perfectly. Don't you reckon? And also, have you ever noticed when you wear a hat with Luft, and you go actually riding in it with a bit of wind, like a bit of speed. Yeah. The whole front of it gets caved yeah. in. Yeah. So it was like, like Indrain, I think, had an afro that was sort of like, he put it inside. He was holding it and up. And held it up. So if you actually don't have good hair, like if you've got a shaved head, you've got nothing to support the luft. So it's only practically a sign-on cap. Helps if you've got a small head, you were saying. Yeah, it gives you, yeah. It gives you the appearance of good luft. Yeah. But I reckon the hats are different now. Yeah. They're not as good. But I was just thinking then, why do we have so many hats? Because we can only wear them to sign on and under yeah. a helmet. And we've got like hundreds of hats. Don't you give them out? At it, yeah, at yeah. any time on the bus, there would be 
like a hundred caps in the drawer. Yeah. And you literally would pull one out, chuck every it day. on your chuck it on not every day, but like you chuck it on your head, ride five minutes, ride back, throw it to a fan or something, and that's it. Or if you wear it in the race, you wear it for the stage, or you throw it on halfway through the stage. Mm. But you don't you don't reuse them, do you? No, you don't. It's I I remember. Sorry to sidetrack here, but I remember when I went first year in school Shimano, I went back out to Australia to do the Sun Tour and I was still getting pretty like, I was gagging over like having endless amount of caps. And so I took like a big pile of caps out and every stage was raining. And so I'd start with the skill Shimano cap and as it got hot, I'd take the helmet off, take the cap off and just throw the cap on the ground. And after about five stages, I always remember Tommy Nankervis came up to me, he's like, Hey man, I see one of your caps on the road every day. Like, I can't believe you're just throwing caps away like that. And like a year before, I would have said the exact same thing because, yeah. you know, caps were like, if you could get your hands on one, you yeah. hand washed it. Yeah. But then all of a sudden you've got an endless amount. He was like, yeah, I just throw caps when I, whenever I want. Yeah. Was it you who was telling me the story a while back about when you first went to skill and you were looking forward to getting the cap, yeah. and, you are, and you had to ask the team or the director yeah, was, where, where, was, the, where the cap was for the Yeah, home. and I was just like, hey man, we wait till you get to the bus. And then when I got on the bus, it was just like, right, yeah, right. Here they are. <laughs> so that's, that's the caps, yeah. One thing people always want to know about is, do you get paid? I know it sounds ridiculous, but one of those things people say, oh right, so you ride, in the, you ride bikes overseas oh, you make oh yeah a living from how that? do you do they what do you get a personal sponsor how, how does that work do you get paid what this doesn't have to be a long answer but how does it work the way i always explain it, as i say it's like a normal sports team like sign riders etc what, what, what do you guys say when people ask you that stuff what do you say Herbs? yeah i get paid <laughs> it's, I think it's quite simple like yeah. it does work like other sports but people because it's not a certainly back home it's not a mainstream sport that people, you know, struggle to understand. Yeah, they ask you, oh, and you, you get looked after, you can, you can make enough money to get by. And at the professional level, yeah, you can. But, um, you know, obviously the team has sponsors, which put money into the team, which then goes to the riders, to the staff, to, to equipment, to travel costs, to everything like that. Mm. I normally explain it a little bit like, and it's nowhere near that level, but like, the European football uh, soccer league. People are like, well, why wouldn't you just do it here? And I'm like, well, you can play soccer in Australia. Yeah. But if you want to be fair income and you want to make it, you go to Europe and you play in the professional league over here. And it's like the same with cycling. There's a scene in Australia, but if you're good enough and you want to make money out of it and you want to, you go to Europe and you do it there. And that's, that's the most similar thing I can compare it to is that there's a league and the leagues in Europe the cycling league and there's teams that you know employ you to play to not play to cycle in their team same as the european soccer league and explain like a, a team is made up of not just say you see nine riders ride the tour de france the team is more than those nine riders isn't it like and, and each team has different ambitions explain how a team is made up and 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 how they might be built for different purposes so each team has probably around 25 to 30 riders um and yeah, for the Grand Tours, you have, have nine riders. For, I think, most of the big classics, you have eight. Yeah, well, there is a limit. So every so the, we're, in the, we're in the World Tour now. And in the World Tour, there's three levels of cycling teams. 
The top level of cycling teams is World Tour. And there's 18 teams in the World Tour. And one, you have to have enough money. But two, for a team to be in the World Tour, they have to apply for a World Tour license. And the UCI, who's the cycling body, only give out 18 licenses a year. And they change the last two or three teams. The top teams always stay in the World Tour. And then below that, there's the, and sorry, in the World Tour, there's a maximum amount of 30 riders you can have on your team. So the team like who has the most money can't just employ like 60 riders. They mm. can only employ 30 riders. And those 30 riders then have to be spread out over the whole racing calendar. And that's what Heppy was saying is that each race has a number of riders that are in it. A Grand Tour having nine riders that have to compete and a Classic having eight. And some races even have down to six. Yeah, I There's think Tour of Britain, races. maybe Sun Tour as well. But what the confusing thing is, I think a lot of people don't understand, is that a lot of teams run double programs or triple programs. And what that means is at one time, Orica can be racing in, a good example is San Sebastian, a Classic in Spain was on the Sunday. The day before that was London Classic in London. And at that same time, Tour of Poland. the Tour of Poland was on. So the team can't literally send the same squad to all those races. They've got to send three different squads to those races. So they've got to have enough riders just to fill that without injuries, without training programs, whatever. So, And are some teams more geared towards classics? Some teams more geared towards trying to win sprint stages? Some teams more geared towards trying to win Grand Tours? Are they built differently? Yeah, definitely. I think each team sort of has their niche. And we, we've seen it actually change in our team over the last yeah. couple of years. Obviously, when the team started, it was uh, um, plenty of sprinters, lead-out guys, classics riders, time trial riders, basically no general classification riders. Well, like um, a big, robust team, actually. Yeah, yeah, the team, like a big team of rollers. Like yeah. the team, you know, had identified that that's, that's what the that's the sort of victories and the goals that we want to chase and it's probably too much too soon to start looking at GC at the, at the biggest races in the world but we've seen it over the last few years obviously signs from different riders and the team starting to adapt into a, to a general classification team mm. and, 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 and so obviously you need more climbing domestiques for that you need, you need winners as well and, um, and then some of the, the bigger dommies you see their, their jobs start to change as well in, in certain races. Yeah, but then there's, there's, there's teams that are classics based. There's teams with, uh, with sprinters. There's yeah. certainly like, like a Sky or a Movistar, for example, big GC team. But I think it really depends on, and we're, we're an exception, Greenish Crew Australian, and say, um, Trapak Cannondale, they're also an exception because they're American. They don't have their origins in any country, but like generally where the team is from, the country, they base on that style of racing. So a French team is generally built up around a tour team to do the Tour de France well. A Belgian team is generally focused on doing well in the Belgian one-day classics. It's rare, and like that's why I think like Cadell Evans being on Lotto back in the day in a Belgian team, it never really worked as well until he moved to a team like BMC that was focused on the the GC, you know, the tours. And it's sort of I never thought about that till now. That the teams from the country that they're from, yeah. they focus on that style of racing. You know, the Italian teams, they're good in Italian races, the Giro, you know, because that's where they're most motivated, that's where they get their money from, the sponsors. They need to do well in their own country first 
and then they do well in the rest of the races. Whereas us, I think it's important now. There's no real Australian style of racing, is there? Well, I think the Australian style of racing up until recently was the Belgian style of racing. We're a bigger, bigger rider in the peloton, and we always did well in the sprints, like McEwen, O'Grady, you know, exception Phil Anderson. But until Cadell, we didn't really have anyone in the GC, but all of a sudden now, it's changing. We've got, you know, Richie, Port, we've got, you know, um, Rowan Dennis. It probably will change even more in the in the next five years or something. Yeah. With with the young under 23s. So what would you say your roles are in the team? Are you there to win races a year? How do you see that your role is? Because everyone also says, is he winning races? Can he win the, can he win this race or win this race? And I was like, well, you know, his role is, is changes from race to race. What would you say yours is? It's, it's a hard one to, um, to understand as well. You know, someone asks you, oh, where are you racing? Racing this race? How'd you go? Yeah, we did great. We won a stage. Oh, how did you go? And you know, if you're a worker, they're sort of you're like, oh yeah, I went alright, but like yeah, I was doing this job. But um, you know, I think people really fail to understand um, how much of a team sport cycling is, and and the whole. T- it's not easy to understand. I can understand that, but. Um, so what do you say? How do you explain what a team sport it is? Well, for example, you do all your training by yourself. It's a lonely sport as well. Yeah. You have to do everything by yourself, but in a race by yourself, you're nobody. You, know, you, you, need, you need a team around. It doesn't matter how good you are. If you don't have a team to work for you, to pull back a breakaway, to, to, to lead you out in the finishes, um, it's, it's just not going to work. And, and in, in that team, there's obviously your, your, your workhorses, your engines. There might be some lead-out guys. You might have a climber. Um, but all combined, that's that's sort sort of how it works. I think like in the short term, you can do things individually. Like you can sprint on your own, you know, a little bit. Yeah. And you have some some results here and there. But longevity, to be a good sprinter for a long time and to be the best, you need to build a good squad around you. And that's defining. And I think that's in any sport too. People start understanding any sport, they realise there's no individuals in the sport. You know, obviously, apart from an individual sport, but I mean, like, I'm talking about soccer again. You might look at like Barcelona. You go, yeah, Messi. Um, Messi is Messi playing Barcelona. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Messi. You know, he kicks all the goals. He's the you know he holds them up. Sure, he kicks the goal, but the guy who sets him up every yeah. time. People who understand the game understand the importance of the guy who sets Messi up. Like a defender. Exactly. That didn't get talked about like the attackers. And like when you're when you're a go mad, you just look at the 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 top players. Oh yeah, yeah, Messi is the best. But anyone who knows the sport will go, no, no, Messi's awesome. But these guys in that team are also doing their role, which makes him look even better. And that's the same in cycling. People who don't understand the sport look at, say, in our team, Garens and, you know, before when Michael was on there, Michael Matthews winning these stages. You're like, yeah. But then when you understand, you're like, holy crap, how good was that lead out from Mitch Dogger. He is the best. You know? He is the man. If, if it wasn't for Mitch, you know, Michael wouldn't have won. He probably would have, but, you know. So when these guys win, are they, you know, do you guys feel like you've won as a team? Do they give you thanks? Like, is there, how does it work when, when, when someone from your team wins? Everyone does their role and someone from the team wins. How does, how do you guys personally feel about all that? It does feel like a personal victory. Um, because you knew you, you know that you played a part in that, um, 
when you agree? Like a, well, when I a teammate wins, it's 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 a victory for the whole team. I think for me, once I got in and I started, you start to understand your your ability, and you start to quickly work out. Wow, I can only do. You quickly find out what you're best at, and you when you find out what your niche is, you're like, I need to focus on that a hundred percent. So for me, it was leading out. I realized I wasn't quite quick enough to win a race, but I'm still good enough to to do a sprint for another sprinter. And then when you start doing your job like that, you get in your own field. There's like 10 guys that lead out and you almost have a race between your own guys that do your job. And you want to be the best that does that specific job. And then when I do my job 100% and I'm like, wow, that was an awesome lead out. And your sprinter gets second or third. You're like, you're still happy because you did your job awesome. Then if he wins, you're like... Perfect. Yeah, you feel like, you really do feel like you won because you did... You're like, I made that happen. And do those guys acknowledge you? Is there, you know, again, if you use a soccer analogy, someone scores a goal and the whole team jumps in and it's a, it's a group thing. Are those guys acknowledging you? Do they, are they thankful of? I think that's, that's an individual thing. Yeah. Like, in general, yes. But along the way, and I think it's more with young guys, they don't understand yet how important that is. Yeah. And they just sort of take it a little bit for granted. They're like, oh, yeah, I won the race. You know, they haven't really worked out that that guy who did all the work in the first 50K actually made it happen. They sort of don't understand that quite yet. And as you get older, you start realising how important every single job is in the squad. You're like, and how important it is to appreciate what everyone does, not just for that race, but for the, yeah. the races to come. You're like okay, I'm, I need these guys on my side. In order for me to do well, I need to support my crew around me. I need these good guys around me. Change of tact, nature stops. You hear they talk about it on, on TV, it's a nature stop. When I was out with you on that ride the other day, we, we had a coffee somewhere and I was like, I need to take a piece of me. She's like, no, 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 we'll do it on the ride. That's the, <laughs> <laughs> that's the one of the best parts of the ride so you're, is you're finding a good stopped. spot for a nature. You already <laughs> stopped at the cafe. Yeah. There's a tour there. And you're like, yeah. come on, mate. You've got to wait till we get going. Again. Yeah, yeah. It's better having you on the ride. Yeah. Tell, tell me about nature stops. So why? I can sort of understand that. There's something about finding a nice picturesque spot to look out upon as you take a whiz. Tell me about nature stops on the race and then on the on a training and nature stops on the on the race. You're talking about just pisos now, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. You're not talking about number twos. We'll no. start with a piss. Pissos. It is like that though. I've been to coffee shops before and and, and, and honestly it's it's almost easier to it's, do a nature stop on the road than to go into a cafe and well, go to the toilet or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, often we will say that. We're like, oh I need to chuck a piss or Ah, we'll just wait till we're up the road five minutes or something. Yeah. And you just you just do it like that. Well, because you've got the kit on. It's not that easy to take a piece yeah. in kit. you got to like, you got the bib and brace on, which holds the shorts up. And you got to really like bend over. And, yeah. and if you're in the toilet doing that, you look like, in, like a freak. Yeah. But when you're out but on the road. At least no one can see you in the toilet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> People see you out on the road. I was, it last week in the race, like obviously we do this every day or sometimes like three or four times a day. Last week in the race, I was doing, you know, doing what I need to do, nature break. And what always cracks me is like the people on the side of the road. Obviously, you try and stop where there's no one around. You don't stop around kids or family or whatever like that. But anyway, there was these chicks up like in the hedges and they were just like peeking through the bushes and giggling. And I was like, oh, like we do it every single day. It's like, really, have you never <laughs> seen someone 
like go to the toilet. understand what we do. We're racing our bikes for six hours. Like we've got to go to the toilet at some stage. And then I, they just giggle away. I found it just that point then when you said I found it really hard. I did Tour of Yorkshire this year. It's probably the biggest crowds I've been in since like Tour of Flanders. I've never done the tour, so I don't know what those crowds are like. But it was it got to the point where it was annoying because you couldn't go to the toilet because the crowd was lined the whole course. And I mean, like a 200k course, there wasn't 20 metres of gap where you could take a piss. And that sounds weird. Does in a race, does the whole peloton stop at once and go, like, how does it, does there people just stop individually and you just get back on? How does that work? Before I was, before I was a pro, I thought that maybe there was, someone said like, oh, you know, piss time and everyone stopped together. But it, there's no real communication. Um, you, obviously, you know when's a good moment. For example, if the breakaway goes, teams block the road, you, you roll for a few more minutes. If everyone knows, okay, we're going to pause now, then, you, then everyone will stop. But you don't really see the massive groups all stopping together these days. It's but just throughout the day. If, if you see the race leader stop, for example, you know it's a good time to stop because his team's probably right in the front. They know he's stopped. They're not going to drill it or anything stupid in the... But there is no guarantee. Like, yeah. what often happens now is, so the normal flow of the race is there's, it's attacking at the start to try and get a breakaway. That can be like 1K or can be... 80K. 80K. And when that break finally goes, the peloton want to give them a bit of time to get away. So often then people go, all right, I'm going to have a piss. And they just pull up. And when you see someone pull up, which is pretty cool to like start the piss over. Yeah. Like if you're the guy who like takes the risk to be the first guy to piss, because sometimes what happens now is you think it's done. Okay, the break's gone. It's going to be like 10K of rolling. Like when I say rolling, like 30K an hour, pretty easy. And you do the stop and it hasn't. Someone goes, I still want to get in the break. And they go. And the race starts again and you're just stopped on the side of the road and you're only on your own like you can be in, you can be in yeah. trouble and there's you're... no real respect there is there it doesn't no. matter who's stopped what about number twos what happens if you're four you know two hours into a race the break goes so no, well normally, <laughs> what happens with number twos normally you'll only have to do a number two if you're sick yeah you've got gastro i think we've been living long enough to know the timing of our bowel movements yeah, because you guys have very consistent bowel movements, don't you? Yeah, this yep. is what a lot of people don't realize. People, but normal people out in the world, they they. It's a gamble. Like, oh my god, <laughs> I need to go to the toilet. Whereas yeah. you, like, you were oh, saying yep. to me the other day, you've got like two a day, definite. Definite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you know what? Someone's yeah. at home. It's different to the race. Well, for me, it is anyway. Like, you know, what you do at home, and know what you do at the race. So, you're never just riding along in the stage, and after two hours, you're like, oof. <laughs> Here she comes. <laughs> like, it, it, that would be, you'd be, it'd be so weird. You'd be if like, that that's happened. bad timing. Yeah. So normally it'll only be if you've got, if gastro, you've yeah, got gastro sick, or something. Yeah. And it has happened before. And if you want to continue in the race, there's nothing really you can do. You've got to stop, do it. That's where we use the Capolinos actually. Because <laughs> there's yeah. no toilet paper in the, in the car. So we'll actually use the Capolinos if we, if we need to do that. As toilet paper. As toilet yeah, paper. Yeah. 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 I have heard a story. <laughs> what do you think? You stop, take your helmet off, put your put your capolino on, take a number two. Well, I've actually heard the story. I think it was McEwen. He told me once that. <laughs> You're throwing him right in the deep end here, by the way. <laughs> he, he he told me this story. So <laughs> right. bugger him. He's proud of it. 
is that he reckons that one time in the race, like it was just going that quick that he had to do it number two in the race. So he had a Capolino and you reckon he, in the Capolino he went and... On the bike. On the bike. I, I don't even believe it's true because I don't even know how you could possibly do that. It's, it's not a, possible, that's, surely. That's a hard one to pull off. You need the teammate there holding your jersey. Two teammates. Nick's bibs rolled down. <laughs> you wouldn't pull your shorts <laughs> off naked in the peloton. Well, you need to roll your bibs down. I think you put the hat inside the bibs. Oh, and just, like, that's even harder. Like how you'd have to hover on the pedals the whole time. Like, wouldn't how you, would you do that? That's wouldn't you just outrageous. do the? Wouldn't you just pull the bibs down and do the pantani off the back of the saddle? Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> just let it go. Put onto the back wheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's going to hit the ground and roll off anyway. You actually did do that. <laughs> For aerodynamics, not oh, for a poo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Oh, God. Uh, so that's nature stops. Nature stops. Tell me about talking of nature stops. Coffee often brings on nature stops for some people. Um, coffee while riding. For those at home, casual riders, riding feels like it is about the coffee. Mm. For you guys, where does how much does coffee play a role in your your day, your ride? Um, are you stopping, having a couple of croissants, going down the road, another milky coffee? Is that how you guys do it? Do you have one? Do you have one? How does yeah. it work for you guys? Well, Mitch and I are both big coffee drinkers, aren't we? Yeah, we are. But I, I can see what you're getting at, Kirk. And sometimes I feel that that is the prime principle some people are riding for in Australia. Back home, yeah. Yeah, it's like, if I could just pull this kid on, that gives me an excuse to drink like six coffees and eat like four croissants because I've exercised. It's like, well, no, mate. You've actually got to do a proper ride. Yeah. But I I understand the fact, the niceness of going to a coffee shop too. I love that. So what do you guys, you go on a ride, you know, do you stop? How does it work for you guys? We, you and I normally stop for a coffee. Yeah. We stop most days on the, on, on the bike. We Obviously, do. bad bad weather or whatever, you just Keep get going. it done. And sometimes the trainer now, they've tried to introduce this thing where they're like, if you stop for more than like 15 minutes, it's considered two separate rides. We're like, come on. So they've tried to cut us out stopping because for purely training. Yeah, sometimes you need to just ride your bike continuously. If you think about a race, six hours, you don't get to stop every two hours for yeah. 20 minutes at the brew shop, do you? So you've got to sit on your bike for six hours. Um, so some, some rides you'll just do that but if you're going and doing a three hour cruisy ride often we'll ride an hour and a half two hours Get stop a have a coffee maybe a bock a sandwich yeah pedal home pretty yeah, cool. different ones part of the part of the fun of going for these rides is you find different spots yeah. yeah I reckon part of for me part of the well the main thing that I love cycling for is exploring you know, and it gives me a chance, like, oh, where can I go today? What can I find? And then you hear, like, around the traps, have you been to that new brew shop down in, um, have you actually been to that new brew shop down in Parafrugal? No, you told me about it, but yeah. I haven't been there. <laughs> it's good. Like, it's really good. Like, and especially here in Spain, they're sort of few and far between. Yeah. In Australia, it's sort of like, you know, you're trying to find an excellent one over a, a You're good pretty one. lucky with the general standard. Whereas here, there's not If you find something many, half it? decent, it's yeah. like, oh, my God, yeah. have you been to that place that does, like, <laughs> normal milk? You got beautiful bread there. Yeah. Great sandwich. But you said you both like your coffee. You use coffee, don't you, as part of, you know, you, you like, is it just if you like it or you like the caffeine? Like, I guess I like the caffeine, but that's not why I have it. I just like the whole, 
it's like a ritual. Yeah. Really, like you get up in the morning, it's the it's the first thing you feel like, and you know, the way cof- the coffee scene's gone now, you want to try different styles of coffee and you know different ways to have it, and it's just a nice. No, what are you? Nice ritual, you know? Yeah, certainly a ritual, but like probably dependent on it as well. Yeah. You know, look forward to a coffee or two in the morning to get out the door. I can't remember the last time I didn't have a coffee before I went training. Yeah, right. Um, I'd have coffee every day. Yeah. Probably three coffees a day. Um, before a race? Yeah. Yeah. Quite a lot. Yeah, same thing. So you've got a coffee machine in the bus as well often have one at brekkie and then have another one on the bus just during the meeting or something like this. I make my own coffee now on the race. So I make one in the room, take it down to breakfast, and then come back up and I make a second one, put in my thermos, take it on the bus. And when you guys are having breakfast on the race and say people are listening again at home and before they go on a ride, are you going out, you know, someone at home might go out and they have their coffee and their food once they're out on the road, but you guys I imagine are filling up pretty well beforehand on the race. I've sat when you guys are having breakfast, there's a whole lot of stuff going on there. Hmm. Like, are you eating as much as you can? Like, what do you guys do before you go out and race? We've also got a lot more time than the, the general punter, you know. Back home, a lot of people have to get out the door early to get to work by 8.30 or 9. Whereas, this is our work, so we can go training whenever we want during the day. Normally we'll, go, normally we'll ride at, what, 9, 10 o'clock. Yeah. Sometimes you go earlier, but... So you have a bit more time. And, and also, we're riding longer than the general punter. And probably more intense so we need to fuel for our rides yeah fuel appropriately yeah. and that's i think if that's a that's something that people just assume is that yeah yeah but you're riding like you know five six hours a day you can just probably eat whatever the hell you want and that's something i have to explain quite a lot is that you do anything for a while and your body gets used to it it's super smart like you go running every day the first time you go running for the week you you start losing weight because the body's like shocked by it. But you start running for half a year and your body's used to it. But so for us, we have to diet. Yeah, you really can't just eat whatever you want. No. Even if you're riding 25 hours a week, it would still be quite easy to put on weight. Easy. Yeah, if you You just start eating like a pig. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You could easily put on weight. So you have to. But like we have all the gadgets now, all the bike computers, they tell you what power you're doing and how many calories you're burning. You have a general idea of, of the number. How much you can eat. Yeah. So what's a go-to breakfast for you before a, like a big hard ride? Um, at home, I normally have like muesli, some berries. Um, Yogi bear. Yogi bear. <laughs> Greek yogurt. Greek yogurt. And well, then, is that like on an intense day because you've got some carbs coming in? Yeah, or? have a big muesli or something like this. A couple bits of toast maybe. Or I'll have just... Uh, scrambled eggs on toast, avo toast or something like that. And then at a race, normally normally have like a bowl of muesli plus like a couple of bits of toast, I'd say. Definitely feel more for, for the racing than I do yeah, at home. I wouldn't, definitely. yeah. I'm a big one on the race because like, a lot of guys on the race, I find this funny too. I try and eat similar to what I eat at home on a race where some guys, and I can't imagine they're doing this at home, is they have like dinner for breakfast. So they'll have like rice. Ugh and eggs or like pasta even and you know just like parmesan and stuff on there because they want to get the carbs in but i'm like i I actually couldn't fathom having a whole bowl of pasta for breakfast you know i'm like i enjoy breakfast too much so i'm like well if i need to get carbs in i'm going to get them in in a breakfast way you know like i'm going to have toast and muesli and it has the potential to be the best meal of the day yeah 
don't ruin it with pasta. Exactly, or rice. don't ruin it. Yeah. Like you've got nice breads, eggs, avo, you know, chorizo, whatever. Like there's little pancakes at the last yeah, hotel too. Yeah, Had yeah. a couple of them. They're nice. Now I have to ask this because this is one that always comes up, and I know you've just discussed this with Dave Miller in the previous episode. But what do you say when people say, "Oh, surely everyone just dopes in the peloton"? How do you guys answer that question? It's it. It's sort of. He did some big. No, I just don't know. It's I, sort of like it's a hard one to answer. It sort of pisses me off because. Yeah. But I, like, it sort of pisses me off, but also it doesn't because, like, why shouldn't they believe that? That's what they get presented. You know what I mean? So if you don't know anything about it, that's the only thing you sort of read about cycling at the moment. Anything that comes up with cycling is all about doping, doping, but it's changing now. So they've got no other reason to believe that. So you've got to sort of think that before you get pissed. Um, Why does it piss you off? Well, because this is generality. You know, it's like you don't know anything about the sport and you just assume that everyone yeah. would be doping. It's They're like, uneducated well, about the sport. Totally. And like, that's there's heaps of other sports. I don't know this for sure too, but like, I'm sure there's a lot of doping in other sports. It just doesn't get... The, the right media cover, coverage, I don't know that, but we've been tainted with it because it is, there is doping in our sport, but it's not the only sport. And it's obvious that the sport has a history and that's well known by everybody. So, so that's why these people, you know, think like this, but I honestly believe it's, it's one of the cleanest sports out there. The, the amount of testing we do, um, the whereabouts system stuff we do, um, Tell me about the whereabouts system and the blood passport. compared to other sports. Yeah. yeah, so we have a biological passport. Explain um, what that is. So that's basically, um, well, it's like a passport, but for your blood. So every time you'll, you'll get a blood test or you'll get tested by the, um, by the anti-doping testers, um, the experts put together in a, and, and analyze it compared to the last test and, and they can see ab um, abnormalities and stuff like that. Um, They're pretty much looking for, because I think what happens is there's no real way of testing for blood doping in terms of taking your blood out of your body, storing it, letting your body reproduce the blood again, and then putting the extra blood back into your body. And then you've got extra oxygen in your body, uh, carriers in your blood. Which means that you don't get as tired. Exactly. So the You've got way more oxygen carrying red blood cells. So, and they say, look, generally I might be tested you get tested, you have to be tested four times a year, quarterlies they call it. So we have quarterlies and from those four tests in the year, plus the other random tests you get during the year as well, they comprise all those tests and they look at your hematocrit level. And so just say mine's 40, then they might look at how much that fluctuates during the year. It might go up when, you, when you're not training very hard, it might go up two or three points. You might go up to 44 because you're recovered, your body produces more. When you start training yourself hard, you get fatigued, you might go down a couple of points. They allow for that fluctuation. I think what they're looking for is when you put, when you put your own blood back in, you might fluctuate in 10 points. And that's the abnormality they're looking for. So the passport is, is trying to show that when people naturally produce more red blood cells, going to altitude, recovery, it goes up two or three. You can naturally do that, but when you unnaturally do it, it goes up 10 points. And that's, I think, what the, the whole passport's about. Tell me about the whereabouts system. What's that? So we do a whereabouts system that basically says 
Um, we have to state where we sleep every single day of the year and we also have to give a one hour time slot, um, a location and time of where we will be available to, to get tested. Every so day of the year. Yeah. Every day of the year. So so we'll, we'll go on, it's laid out like a calendar. You'll say Monday night, Girona home, time slot, six to seven o'clock in the morning. And uh, if the test has come during that time and you're not home, you get a strike, three strikes and you get a two-year suspension. Two year suspension. Right. The same as a, as a doping offence for testing positive. So they, that essentially that the idea of that is so that they can randomly test you at any point in time. Exactly, so they, can, also, randomly, they yeah. can randomly test you. They're also doing night testing now. Um, I think it's also it's, to monitor where you're going too. It's like if some guy randomly just goes to Mexico for three weeks, they're like, right, what's he up to yeah. in Mexico? You know, like, what's going on over there? You know, and they might send a tester over there or they might just, you know... It's also good, home. it's also good because then the riders also know, okay, someone's looking at me, you know. It's not just, this is the problem they had back in early 2000s. There was no whereabouts system. They only got tested at a race, no out of competition testing. So you could literally do whatever you wanted at home, couldn't you? As long as you were good at the race. Yeah, whereas... Safe, clean. Whereas, um, you know, nowadays you can get tested any time of the year. I've had them coming New Year's Day, Christmas Eve, it doesn't matter to them. Um, and it is it is hard because, as we naturally are, you get lapsed with this stuff. It's really, really important. Have you had a strike? I've had a few, yeah. And like you just, like anything, you have to do every day. And initially in the beginning, you're really yeah. onto it and you're really aware of it. But after two, three years of it, you get laps and you forget to do one one time and of course on that day you put the wrong address or you forgot to update you going to your missus's yeah. place that night last minute you're like holy shit i did not change my whereabouts last night bang the testers are there bang miss test it always happens like that and yeah that's not an excuse but it is <laughs> i'll be happy i was with you one time back in melbourne and, and at the gym yeah and mum called and you'd had the address back at home and I was and at the gym. I went to the, the gym, gym early. Yeah, you were at the gym early, and you had like half an hour to get back there, and you didn't get back there in time. Yeah, and that's even actually you even cop a mistest for that because they don't know what you've done in that half an hour. When you're out of their sight and you're aware that they're there, that's a mistest because you could be doing something dodgy to disrupt the test. I think you've got to be at the location you've in stated that hour. for the whole time you've stated. Yeah. For example, if you do six till seven o'clock in the morning, you can't wait till six thirty and then just decide to go training yeah. because maybe they'll come at six fifty-five, six fifty-nine, or something. Yeah. yeah. But it it's it's just something that you have to get used to, you know. You and and also the other thing is we spend how many different hotels would we sleep in in the year? Over a hundred different hotels. So you're constantly having to change. It's not easy. Like this week I'm here. This week I'm here. You know, Monday night of this race I'm staying in this hotel. Tuesday I'm moving to the next hotel, Wednesday I'm moving again, and so on. The so you guys are doing it yourselves at the you races? And you certainly, you just have to keep putting in new locations. So for anyone who can hear that, Girona at seven o'clock at night and every bell tower going. This is the views of living in he's Europe. He's going off. Um, all right, let's just punch through a couple of last ones. Saddle sores. Explain what they are, what's been your worst one? How do you not get them? Whoa, that's at the last bit. I don't think there is an answer to that. 
How do you not get one? Yeah. yeah. Well, Satisaur is basically, what is it, like an, an irritation on the skin? Yeah. In your gooch area where you sit <laughs> on the bike, caused by friction or... Wait, wait, let's call that area, yeah, there's a few names for that area. The gooch, the ATB. The arse neck. Arse neck. Arse, no, A, ABC. What's that? Arse ball connector. <laughs> <laughs> So that area between there that you sit on the saddle that sits on there for hours and hours a day, it's like, I reckon a good, I reckon this is a good analogy is when the start of summer, you start walking around barefoot everywhere. You can't walk anywhere. You're walking on bindi eyes. Your foot are getting pricked. You can't walk on hot roads. By the end of summer, your foot's got a bit of leather on it. You can go anywhere. It. You can go anywhere. Get walk on glass. That's a little bit like your ABC. Start of the off season, I mean, start of the pre-season, you're pretty sore under there. You're doing six-hour rides. You're like, I can't sit down. Does it get pussy down there? Is this what a saddle <laughs> sore is? Like, what's the, you've, what's yeah, the, what are we looking at? Everyone's different. You've got to train. You've, as you said, you have to train that area to be strong. And you have to, you have to keep it clean. Yeah, and some people, some people go for the chamois cream because that sort of takes away a little bit of the bruising. But bruising. I find. Well, like the friction. The, the friction, the friction, which leads to bruising. But I find it's better to probably go no chamois cream, and to build that that leather surface you're, I you're talking about, <laughs> and 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 to strengthen that area. Durbo told me a really good theory, and I believe this is true: is that the older the chamois gets, this is the chamois that's in your shorts that you sit on, the more chance you have of getting a saddle sore because. It never really gets clean properly, if you know what I mean. The new, if you keep having a new chamois all the time, it's clean, it's fresh down there, and, and less time in the chamois. Like, I mean, stopping at a, we talked about this, stopping at a cafe is probably the worst thing for saddle sores. Like, you sweat down there, and you're sitting in a wet chamois at a, at a cafe, and they say, like, one common term is you're, you're growing mushrooms down there. <laughs> <laughs> And that is, that is a good description. It's like, Tom's get that chamois off. Train in it and then get it off. Keep that area clean. Yeah. That's subtle sauce. <laughs> injuries. Worst injury. And, and you guys get a lot of injuries. Explain, explain how often, or well, I suppose it depends if you come off or not, but people come off a lot. You had a big crash last year. You've spoken about it on the show. I'm not sure if that's you would classify as your worst injury, but tell me about injuries in general and, and how, much, how much injuries you're dealing with as on a, on a, in a yearly basis? I'd say most of the injuries you deal with are, are impact injuries. Cycling's not really a sport where, where people blow up with a, with a knee or a back, or, occasionally, but most of the injuries are broken bones from impact, from crashes. But it's you now, like I've noticed even in the last couple of years. But not, not like running, for example. My knees are getting- Or rugby up. league. Yeah, that's yeah. true, yeah. You know, or, or, or AFL or whatever, where they're getting hamstrings or they're out for a season with an ACL or... But it is, it is, a, it is, a, it is a fatiguing sport in a different yeah. way. Like, sure, there are the impact injuries, but I think you do get the fatiguing, like people's backs give yeah. way. And, you know, people's knees eventually give way and irritation. Because you are doing so many yeah. pedal strokes. And it's not a natural position. Like sitting on a bike is not a natural position. But tell me about some of the impact ones. What, you know, what so would you say every year? The most typical one would be probably a collarbone. Collarbone. Collarbone yeah. or a skateboard, like a wrist. So often you'll be, there's a crash, you know in that split second you're going to crash, you're either going to go over, 
on top of the other crash or hit something. And the first reaction of many people is to, you know, protection mechanism is to stick your, stick your hand out, which is the worst thing you can do because you stick your hand out, either your wrist is going to break or, yeah. or your collarbone is going to yeah. break from the impact. The best thing you can do in a crash is to just maintain your position, hold the handlebars and be just, loose and, and just be loose and just almost just take it, like roll with it or whatever. But Who's going to do that? But easier said than done. And also then, I'm sure people have done that before and then busted a shoulder or something like this yeah. or, or had a knock to the head or something like this. A lot easier said than done, but um, certainly broken bones in the hands, the collarbone. I think another common one I've thought about now is concussion. Yeah. That's something I had in 2012, and I wasn't that aware of how many people get concussion until I, after I had one. But yeah, like falling and you hit your head. Even if you've got a helmet on, you still get concussion, and that's a really underestimated injury. People can't see the injury, and if you can't see the injury, you don't think it's that bad. But I reckon that's one of the worst ones. People don't understand it. Even yourself, you don't understand when you've got a concussion. And your natural reaction as an athlete is to get back into it as fast as possible. You aren't broken anywhere, so you can ride. Yeah. But everyone's everyone knows different levels of concussion, and it's not so easy to identify either. And it just it, it knocks you around when you start training with a with a bruised brain. <laughs> like I don't know if you remember me in that period, but I was a bit of a crazy. Mm. What about losing skin? Yeah, right. You've just lost some now. I just saw in your hip today we went for a swim yeah bloody crash you want to tell us about the yeah i crashed in the... <laughs> i cannot believe that time trial in an eco tour or big bank tour which is called now i said yeah it was it was raining heaps and i was like oh, i'm not going to go for it i want to stay safe crashed i wasn't even going for it and i crashed so anyway the most typical thing when you crash every single time i don't think i've ever not done it is on your hips. Your hip always loses a big patch of skin, and that's something you got to get used to. And hip, you... knee, elbow. and elbow. Yeah, they're the three. Look. They're the three spots. <laughs> they're the they're the three spots you're where covered in them. Where hip, everybody knee, has elbow. scars All in the cyclist. If you're lucky, you don't have too many. But I and seem to always, I seem to always crash on the left as well. I don't know what it is, but that's where all my all my scars are. And you, yeah, you got to deal with bad sleeps and you got to wait for the skin to repair. And, and we were talking about this the other night at the race. There's not a lot of other sports where you see people get injured like we do and go on with the sport. Like, to go back to soccer again, <laughs> these guys, like, come on. Like, you often see cyclists, they're practically broken bones riding yeah. to the end of the stages. And I'm... What's With it? the hope that if I rest tonight, I'll be okay tomorrow. It's, it's exactly. ridiculous. Or maybe, maybe some, the X-ray won't show a broken bone. Or, and some or, of these, or something like this. Some of these road rash injuries, like no one will hear about. They're they're horrific. Like if you ever crashed a bike on the road, everyone would know what that's like. And doing the rest of a grand tour with that, yeah. Or a tour takes it out of your body, oh, your immune system, hell. everything. Often the crash, often the crashes don't actually hurt that much. It's after. They're they're, they're over so quick. The, the adrenaline, you yeah. okay, if you break a bone or if you have a big impact crash, you'll, you'll feel it, but often these normal crashes that we have, they, they don't necessarily hurt, do they? It's <laughs> afterwards, it's, it's the nights. The showers, the it's sleeping. It's the showers, it's, it's, it's changing the dressings with the doctor, the sheet sticking to you during the night. This is, 
It's the, the days that follow that are the worst. The doctor is like, I remember one time, he's like, got to get this like gauze. It's like this rough, it's like a rough cloth. Yeah, and he's just like, I've got to take the top layer off that because it's, you know, it needs to be cleaned. And he's just literally wiping the, the oh. scab off. And you're just like, come on, mate. That is so painful. <laughs> I was like, I'd rather crash right now oh. than this. Anyway. A couple last things. When you're riding, and, and this is what I found quite interesting, is that you live in a town and you're not, you're not, you don't necessarily, you said already before, you train on your own or you might train with other riders, but you actually hang out with riders from other teams. You might train with riders from other teams. In a race, you might talk to riders from other teams. How does it sort of work with, with, with what other sport in the world do you actually converse with the opposition teams or train with opposition teams or, just, or talk with them in the, in the race? Do you have guys that are sort of your favourites, your go-tos, guys that you, you chat to in a race or that you train with? How does it work with, with opposition teams and riders from opposition teams? I think it probably happens more in, in other sports than we think. Like, yeah, we don't know enough about the sport. We don't, we don't know, but like cycling, for example, you know, you have good friends from from other teams that you often train with, you'll see at the races. And um, there's sort of that respect there, even though you are racing against them, you have guys that you're closer with in, in the peloton. I think maybe there is a similarity, like a good example is rugby league. So one week they're playing against each other, say Eels versus, you know, the Rabbitohs. They're smashing each other. The next week they're playing Origin, they're teammates together. And they could also be playing against each other, a Queenslander who's in the Rabbitohs team, smashing him in origin. And the next week they're playing back together, they're mates. Same sort of thing here. We go out training together. Like I might go training with a guy from Camdale Dratback. Cruise along. Next week in the Classic, I'm bumping shoulders with him, telling him to get out of my way, whatever. And it's that moment, and I think we all respect it. And mm. you don't take it to heart. Yeah. When you tell someone to piss off, or, you know, get out of my way or whatever. It's like, yeah. that's the situation of the race. Yeah. And a common thing people say, which I hate, is, yeah, but he's a good guy off the bike. <laughs> he means well. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, but that guy's an absolute idiot on the bike. But it sort of is like that. When you get in your race mode, yeah, you just do your thing, what you have to do, and everyone understands that's work. And, and when you come home, it's normal life. Oh, it changes quickly from day to day as well yeah. you're saying you might be argy bargy with this guy in the lead out the next day you're in the breakaway with this guy yeah and, and you, you need to work got, together you've got to work together yeah. you know or you're in the group etto maybe exactly. chatting together exactly yeah. and often you know often you have a bit of a barney with someone out there and then it's pretty weird in group etto then you're like hey, things mate. you know a few hours go by you start to come down you go oh sorry mate you know I've a bit got a bit carried away there or something like this but That's I think a, I think everyone understands pretty well that do you have guys that you lean towards that you see in the race and they're sort of your mates and even though they're on for other teams you might chat to especially on those days where maybe the italians are rolling up the sleeves getting the suntan yeah, yeah definitely yeah like i think you sort of get sick of your own teammates because you're hanging out in the hotel with them and then you're back here in Girona. so you take a race as an opportunity to talk to guys you don't see often probably other aussies or even old teammates or whoever know who knows why you're friends with them but you go I might see Adam Hansen. Don't see him all year and I'm in a race with him. The break goes, great, I can go talk to Adam. You know, I'll go and have a quick chat to him. So that's a good opportunity. And what are you, what are you guys talking about in the race? Talking tactics? Hey, man. How's the season going? Yeah, mate. Go through the typical questions, go. Yeah. 
you know, what are the next races? <laughs> you doing the world championships? So yeah, yeah. You have a contract for next year. Tells <laughs> 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 right about what are you doing in the offie? Yeah. yeah. Usual bullshit. It's like six six questions. It's like yeah. Hey man, hey. Next. You doing <laughs> that's, that's what you do to the people you like, not really close with. You don't really know that well, but you know, you say hello to them. Mm. But, um, <laughs> fuck, talk about anything. Yeah. Yeah, talk about the off season. Yeah. Talk about a night out you had three years ago. You might even talk about the start of that race. Like, yep. it was ridiculously hard. You're like, what the hell was that guy doing? Or, you know, that was that was epic. Or what was yesterday? Oh, yeah. shit, tomorrow. Yeah. Have you seen tomorrow? You know, like, you do a bit of that surface stuff. Mm. And then if you know him well enough, you might just get into actually good combo. Yeah. Which is, like, any combos that you normally have. Yeah. All right, last question. Best moment. Both of you. Racing. It may not be personal glory. It may be a moment where there was a glory for the for the team, or it may be, uh, you know, riding somewhere different. You know, a really different place you hadn't been. I don't know. What what's what's the best moment for you? Well, a lot of races, a lot of race days. Yeah, a lot of races. Um, the Giro team time trials in fourteen and fifteen would would be up there. Starts the Giro started both those years with the team's time trial, and and we won the the first stage. So I reckon that was in this team and also the team time trial event. I really like. Um, that was pretty special, wasn't it? Mm. I reckon. And of course, you some who went in pink. Swaino went in pink the first Swain year. Swain Tuft, yeah. Yeah, and then and then Gero the year after. So. Um, I always, we always talk about that. It's not a specific moment for me that the teens time trial because I did some early work there and swung out, so I never was there for that final kilometre. But being up on the podium with you guys, and I've I've heard this from other people, is that no one's seen us celebrate a win like we celebrated that. And we, I don't know if you guys seen the Giro, but you get these magnums. They're not even magnums. They're bigger than magnums. Whatever the next size is of champagne each, and we literally had a party up there with these champagne bottles. And we were pretty ridiculous. I want to yeah. see the video from that. Yeah. Jones, you'll love it. And that was, that was a really special moment. But not just that moment, but that, that Giro for me, that squad we had there, every guy in that team, not that I don't like all my teammates, but every guy in that team was a mate, a true mate. And we had a, a brilliant team, even though everyone kept dropping off and slowly we one yeah. right or less every day. But a good crew there. It was a real good crew. Bert. Yeah. Kazi. It was, it was a good crew, but... My, my moment, and I've said this before on the podcast, and it just it came straight to me was probably my most favourite moment. Maybe I've romanticised it a bit now. Is the moment coming off Sector Seven in two thousand and eleven, Roubaix, was seeing my wife Liddy on the sector, I came off the sector and I just didn't think I was going to be in the front. I, and I, I went in the break and I committed everything in the break and I was like, yep, I'll try and hang on as long as I can. And I came off the sector with the big boys and I was for that moment, a big boy. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and she saw me and I was just like, yeah. You're like, yeah, look girl. Were I'm you married me. then? You weren't no, married yet. I wasn't even married. Yeah. And I just came off and I was like, Day done. Like, I couldn't even care what happened after that because I was like, she saw me in the front. 
I'm here with Boone and Ken Shalara. I'm like, yep. So that was, and I think back to that moment, like, and from there on, I, I raced the rest of the race. Like, when you go over the cobbles in, yeah. in Roubaix, you always imagine, like, imagine I'm in the front one day, just, like, cruising over the cobbles. Yeah. And that, that was that. Yeah. And every second Chasing did, the motorbike up, up yeah. one of the sectors or something, yeah. And that's that, that moment that you always envision every cobblestone sector you go over, whether it's in Girona here or whether yeah. it's somewhere you're like, oh, yeah, I'm on the front of Roubaix yeah. here. I was in the front of Roubaix. You almost, even if you're on like a really light cobbled section, you almost start doing the body rock. Yeah. As if you're like through the, going through the forest and it's just like... It was sick. It was, and like every guy around me were big hitters. And I was like, yep, yeah, I'm just like the little dude here. You know, it was, it was cool. And I always think back to that moment. All right. Well, I, I, you know, I've got, I've got plenty more. I we'll have to save that for part two at some point else down the track. Thanks for having me on board, Kirk. Awesome. No problem. I'll let you wrap it. It was good being a guest on my own podcast. I tell you, it's, <laughs> it's a different feel having my brother run it. And we almost need to wait for the next bells to shut us out. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a shame we haven't timed that well enough. Um, but great to have you guys on here. Great to get the potty back up and running. Yeah. So great to be on it. And we'll put a photo up. Well, you can do this. A photo yeah. of where we are. This beautiful spot of Girona. I have to clear some of these beers away. <laughs> All right, guys, stay tuned.